This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today, I'll be discussing teen sleep and why it matters with clinical psychologist Sally Ann McCormack. Sally Ann runs several psychology practices in Melbourne, Australia. She's also a media commentator and author of two books, Stomp Out the Ants, Automatic Negative Thoughts, and Living with Ants. She's a mother of four adolescents and adults and works with adult mental health and issues and specifically is interested in the prevention and treatment of depression and anxiety in children and adolescents. Welcome, Sally Ann. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Sally Ann, how were you drawn into this field? Uh, I started this um, at university. So I started studying psychology. I used to be a primary school teacher and I started studying uh, psychology when my children started school. And I have four four gorgeous daughters. So, uh, and sleep was obviously one of those things that oh. I didn't get much of. Oh. So, you know, with, with four young children and um, studying, one of my professors said, you know, hey, Sally Ann, why don't you uh, look at this program? And it was called Sleep Better Without Drugs by Dr. David Morowitz, who is a psychologist here in Melbourne. And I kind of rolled my eyes because I thought, oh, this just sounds like, you know, one of those things. I mean, I'll never get any sleep. But following his program and looking into sleep research was actually quite interesting. You know, we think we all know how to sleep because we all sleep. Um, but what I found was that there's lots of things that I didn't actually know or understand about sleep. And I also found out that no one really knows the answers to a lot of things about sleep either. So I found it fascinating. Wow. So if we take a step back, you were a school teacher and now you're a psychologist. Was it your interest in mental health for teens and, and children that drew you from teaching into actual mental health? It's interesting. There were lots of things. One of them was actually that I had five daughters, but one of them died. The second, oh. the second daughter died when she was about a month old. And that made me fascinated because of the reactions that people had. We lost friends. We gained friends. Uh, people reacted in lots of different ways. You know, oh, it's a blessing she's gone. And oh. I know all those things that, that people say, they think that they're saying the right things, but there's nothing blessed about uh, mm -hmm. losing a child. So I became fascinated by responses. You know, how do some people think this is great, some don't? And so that drew me into it. And the other thing that drew me into it was that my children, as I travelled along the path of psychology, some of them were gifted. And I was fascinated by that too and thought, you know, this is such a great area of interest, you know, to help people that didn't seem to fit into the school system all that well, um, to give them both the assessment and also maybe strategies on how to um, to fit in a little bit more. So, yeah, all related to children and adolescents, but for, for different reasons. So, yeah, that brought me into Yeah, so having children, these children, has changed your life and your sleep. It certainly has. And now just with those children, um, two of them, one is already a general psychologist and the other one, another one of them is um, training now to be a clinical psychologist, provisional psychologist. So, um, yeah, so we obviously all love psychology too. Yes. And we're all interested in sleep, coincidentally. So oh, there you go. Fantastic. So what are your discoveries about sleep? 
So sleep is crucial uh, for all of us, for our overall, uh, overall health, for well-being. Um, it affects our mental health and our physical health, our productivity, memory, concentration, quality of life, that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, to some degree we know that. We know that if we don't get much sleep overnight, we wake up and, you know, don't, don't talk to me before my first coffee kind of thing. Like I think we all get that, um, you know, that grumpiness in the mornings or even a, like a, a difference in personality. I think everyone um, listening that's ever been a parent, you know when your child hasn't had enough sleep or your partner hasn't had enough sleep. Um, because of their grumpiness, moodiness, whatever it might be. So I think we're all familiar with that. Um, but the fascinating thing in terms of the research is that we really don't understand sleep. We, we know a few things about it. We know that um, it's essential. We know that we can end up with having um, psychotic hallucinations if we don't get sleep over a period of a, a few days. So it's that critical in our overall health and well-being. So it's a fascinating area. And yet we still don't know exactly why or what it is. So fascinating. So have you learned to improve your sleep since you had a problem with sleep with all these children? Um, waiting for them to grow up was probably <laughs> the best. That was probably the easiest method. But there's so many different um, things that we can do. So I did... Uh, some of the uh, David, Dr. David Morowitz's programs uh, much earlier on in my career. And uh, he has a, a set of rules that he calls the nine or oh, nine rules for better sleep. And I have always followed those for the majority of my career and for myself as well. So way back being a, you know, a novice in the psychology field, I, uh, or a, a student actually, I ended up following the program that I was asked to study and it just changed my life, actually. Like it really did change my life. And and anyone who wants to look into Dr. David Morowitz's programs, they're, you know, they're welcome to. He has a website and all these things. But the parts that were most relevant to me were things like um, understanding about the sleep cycle, which I can talk about, um, and also knowing how to do what he says is catching the wave of sleep mm. so knowing how to do that and how to make sure that we don't train our brain in the wrong way so they're the sorts of things that I've I've learned and all about you know blue lights and uh mobile phones next to our bed and all that kind of thing so I've got lots of information on all of that fantastic and how would we train our brain in the wrong way for sleep well one of those things is Going to bed, so our, our, there's different parts of our brain. I refer to it as a puppy dog brain, uh, which is the basically the limbic system, the primitive brain, sort of the back of our um, head, our neck. And that part, I call it the puppy dog brain because it doesn't understand language. So, you know, it, it controls our breathing, movement, you know, blinking, heart rate, all those kinds of things, but it doesn't understand our language. So if we're watching a scary movie, for example, we can't tell that part of the brain that it's just a movie. It's on a two-dimensional screen. It says oh, my gosh, we're in danger and our heart starts racing and, you know, adrenaline kicks in and we get really scared during a movie. But nothing's actually dangerous in the room. So in that same way, that part of the brain that controls all of those um, more primitive actions in our bodies, it also uses our eyes and ears, you know, it watches the television, hears things. 
And so when we're lying in bed at nighttime and we're playing on our phone or watching television or, yeah. you know, doing something that's more, you know, fun or not conducive to sleep, the, um, the, that part of the brain says, oh, great, this is our room where we have fun. Yeah. And that's not the message that we want our brain to have. We want our brain to say, okay, start coming down. Let's slide down, get comfortable, close our eyes, and let's be asleep within five to ten minutes. Like that's what we want our brain to do. But we're playing on our phone, we're watching television, we're, you know, using our Netflix subscriptions or, you know, whatever, Stan, Prime, uh, and we are not helping our brain to see that this room is meant purely for sleep. So we need to, so that's, you know, something that we do that's unhelpful for patterns. So we need to stop and for at least for a period of four to six weeks to kick in our, um, like the, the rhythms of our body, four to six weeks is what we need to have a behaviour change. So we need to spend that time really focusing on solely sleeping in our bedroom. And so David Morowitz, uh, along with all of the other sleep hygienists, and that's what they're called, is it's called yes. sleep hygiene. The sleep hygienists will all say pretty much the same thing. You know, don't uh, maybe don't even em uh, enter your room during the day. So once you've left in the morning, if if sleep is an issue for you, yes, close close the door. Do not enter again until nighttime. So if you are going out or need to get dressed or something, get your clothes out of the room and put them somewhere else. If you're a student, uh, either a child, an adolescent or an adult, um, don't study in your room. You need to go and study somewhere else and you need to get away from um, anything in that, uh, of entering that room or anything that's going to um, alter the, the brain association with the limbic system. So if you can uh, leave and not enter again, that's one thing that you can do that's helpful. Another thing, and this is in David Morowitz's program, you can lie in bed and if you're there for more than half an hour, you need to, this is my paraphrasing, get up and get out. Yes. Get up, leave the room, go and do something boring in a low light if, uh, you know, if you need some type of light, and then you are just simply waiting for what he calls the wave of sleep. It's that moment where our eyes get really droopy, like the sandy, scratchy kind of feeling, and that is our indication that it is almost time to, or we're about to enter the wave of sleep. And the wave of sleep only lasts between five to ten minutes, and so you need to get up from wherever you are and slowly walk back to your bedroom, go and lie down. And again, if you're there for five minutes, uh, sorry, for half an hour, you need to get up and get out again, go and sit down, do something boring, which does not include television. It does not include any type of media, like social media or uh, viewing media. I recommend really boring magazines, not even a book, because a book can get you involved and you may not notice the wave of sleep happening, but certainly a boring magazine that is really short. So you're not tempted to say, well, you know, my eyes are a bit scratchy, but I just got to get to the end of this chapter or page or whatever. Yeah. And it's interesting you say you may not notice the wave of sleep because 
you know, a lot of people will say, well, I don't have that, but perhaps they're just not noticing it. And how how can people really pay attention and know that that's coming? Great question, because I have a lot of clients that say that to me as well. It's it, it, it's simply the noticing. I mean, if you're if you're reading a book, and we've all done it, we've, you know, you lie in bed uh, reading a book or watching something on television, you are focusing on whatever's giving you the attention, yeah. whatever your attention is. You're not thinking about your, um, you know, your eyes or your sleepiness. So this is why it must be boring. It must be out of your room so your brain doesn't say, great, we're awake in here again. Um, we want it to just associate with sleep, with being asleep. So, yeah, so if you're doing something boring and you're waiting for it, like that's your sole purpose is waiting for the, uh, the wave of sleep to happen, then you need to just, yeah, find something boring and, and watch for it. And it will happen. Like the ultradian rhythms continue all through um, our days and nights as well. And with the circadian rhythms, they are like 24-hour cycles. And we know that that exists because, you know, how many of us actually need to wake up every three or four hours to eat? And that's really none of us. And those that do need to go and talk to your doctor about that. But for the rest of us, we don't need to do that. Sorry, Amanda. Could you explain the rhythms you just mentioned? Well, the rhythms in terms of the ultradian rhythms for sleep, for example, what happens is that they cycle every so in an adult this is an adult every 90 to 120 minutes so that's that's where we only get that uh five to ten minute window every 90 to 120 minutes but i can talk about the um the different stages of sleep as well so there's stage one which is really where you start becoming quite drowsy you, you know you start falling asleep the brain waves and the muscle activity and everything starts to decrease at, at this time stage two is light sleep the, the eye, eye movement stopped your brain wave frequency and your muscle tones decreasing heart rate body temperature goes down I, I've always been troubled by the going down of the body temperature because I get hot at night time. Yes. But they, you know, the research says that the core part of your body actually goes down in temperature. Yeah. And I, I just still can't conceptually, um, you know, follow that. But apparently that's true. Yeah. Um, stages three and four are the times where it's most difficult for you to be awakened. Your body's totally relaxed. Your blood pressure and body temperature are reduced. Again, I get hot and sweaty, but I'm an older woman. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. And then there's REM. Uh, rapid eye movement state which is uh where the brain's awake but the body's sort of paralyzed and it's the deepest stage of sleep and what happens in the cycles is that it within a seven to eight hour sleep the REM takes up more of the night cycle later on in the evening so it doesn't there's not a lot of REM in the first part of the night but as we get closer to waking up time there's more REM in there the rapid eye movement the sort of paralyzed time in there so um yeah, so they're the, the different stages of sleep. So we need to be conscious and aware of that. It's 90 to 100 minutes, 120 minutes, sorry, and a five to 10 minute window. And in children, so just as a little aside, their, uh, their sleep cycle is slightly different. It's just shorter than us. So an infant sleep cycle is 50 to 60 minutes. Um, and interesting, just little random facts. I like random facts. Uh, cats are 30 minutes. Oh, Rats are 12 minutes and elephants are 120 minutes. <laughs> That's the sleep cycles there. So it's yeah, just kind of fascinating. 
And and with the adolescence, it's tricky because their sleep cycle starts later than ours. So, ah, so um, that's why they're staying up later and staying asleep um, longer in the day. Yes, because back in you know cavemen days, it was really a safety feature that was built into us. So you know back in the day uh, in cavemen times, the adults would tend to the fire and yeah. they would fire on their melatonin the chemical that assists with our sleeping kicks in you know about nine o'clock ten o'clock at night ish um and they will then go to sleep but they need the strong adolescents awake to continue tending the fire and making sure that there's no you know animals or mm-hmm. anything that's going to come into the um into the cave or you know into the area so it's to keep people safe so the adolescents stay up later then when they finally go to sleep, it's not long before the adults wake up to continue with stoking the fire and keeping it alight and that kind of thing. So it makes sense. It's a perfectly reasonable uh, system. However, uh, not for us these days. And for some reason, which is a bit of a bugbear of mine, secondary schools are set up for adults. Mm. So secondary schools start anywhere from 8 to 8.30 typically, uh, some schools that have sport as well, they might even start much earlier. And an adolescent's body is not designed to be up that early in the morning because they can't, you know, the amount of adolescents that say, you know, I can't be asleep before midnight. Yeah. It's actually true. Like that's their design feature. Their melatonin doesn't kick in. And all these parents that get angry at them and say, you know, you've got to get up early in the morning, you've got to go to sleep more, but they just can't do that. Like oh. it's so and I've uh, seen some schools I can't remember where I saw it would would give um, different shifts for starting school for teens oh fantastic I I wasn't aware of that Uh, Melbourne though maybe maybe it's just not here I'm not sure Um, that sounds great what that's that's fantastic because honestly the first period of the day is a waste of everyone's time because the kids can't they can't concentrate they're they're probably while they physically might be there, uh, they they really aren't mentally there. They're not ready to start studying. So, yeah. And have you noticed, um, and particularly I guess in Melbourne, which was one of the largest or it was the most locked down city in the mm-hmm. world during the pandemic, must mm-hmm. have changed and had an impact on sleep issues? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, I will say that that was a, a very, very difficult time Um well, for for all of us here in in Melbourne, um, it it has affected our adolescents. Uh, it's affected all of us, honestly, uh, purely because of the not being able to leave the home. But in terms of sleep, in some ways, it probably was advantageous for the adolescents because their schooling, you know, if it started at eight thirty and that was just kind of a group meeting sort of thing, most of them weren't really in class till nine, and they'd be waking up at like three minutes to nine or whatever so they were able to sleep quite a bit more and so the return to school would have actually been quite difficult and challenging for them so um and in fact I can tell you that it is because I've seen lots of uh students since then but um yeah and now they're you know they're back to having to get up for sports in the morning if they go to a sporting school and you know even if they don't their regular school starts at you know some ungodly hour for them and their, you know, their bodies just want to be asleep. So there's, uh, and it's a, it's a real worry because they are chronically sleep deprived, chronically, just about all of them, I think. Oh, that's terrible. What would you then advise for these adolescents and for their parents? 
I would advise them to contact the schools. I've done that myself. I've contacted school bodies, not individual schools, but school bodies, trying to to show them that it's a waste of everyone's time and effort. And I understand the logistics of it. I mean, the teachers in the schools are probably parents themselves. They've got to pick up their primary school children or, you know, whatever it is that they have to do. However, if the purpose of a school, and I say if, if it is purely for the students, then I don't think that there would be any secondary school stu- uh, secondary school that starts before like 9, 30, 10, honestly. And, and so we, you know, we have to acknowledge that that's not what it's for. Their ability to concentrate, focus, remember is impeded because of the lateness of the, of the, you know, of the time that their bodies kick in, but also because they have reduced sleep. And what we know about sleep is that it is helping the brain's connectivity and plasticity. It's about learning and memory. And and so when we lose sleep, we have problems with memory. So the information that we have doesn't go from the short-term memory to the long-term memory, which is what we want during the sleep processing time. And that's, as I said, it's one of the the things that we do know about sleep. But that's not happening if they're only getting, you know, four, five, six, seven hours sleep. It's It's not happening. And then we you know, get mad at them because they don't do very well in their tests or they, you know, they aren't doing very well in class or they're falling asleep in class. I mean, that sometimes happens too. And it's, you know, I think that we need, if we take education seriously, we need to change the times that schools, secondary schools start. Primary school is fine, uh, but secondary school is not. So Absolutely. You know. And the demands on teens these days are, enormous and extraordinary with um, internet and media and world global crises and change and they're our future and we're not really looking after them. No, we are absolutely not. That's I 100% agree with you. They have all these pressures. They they worry about um, the, you know, the, the situation of the world, you know, climate change. And, and while all these things are good to learn about, it's not there's to worry about to a great degree they've got enough you know the the adolescent years the later adolescent years they're all about socializing learning who you are and you know what what it is that you like and don't like you know where you belong in the world Um, then you know you get this pressure in the final year of school which is called VCE here I think it's HSC in Sydney Mm. And lots of different names for it but regardless all of the schools and teachers communicate to the adolescents that this is you know this is the be all and end all and if you don't do very well in this then you know you're not going to really have a great life in the future so you know you have to do really well you have to get good marks it's all about the marks and that's so not true like that that is not not the case yeah. and is unhelpful anyway because, you know, they don't need any more pressure. You know, they're starting to, it, it, at least here in Australia, they're hitting the drinking age, they're hitting the driving age. Yeah. You know, there's all these things, you know, the social things. They're trying to, you know, find boundaries between themselves and their parents. Um, you know, they're trying to fit in with friends. They're, you know, there's there's so much going on. Let's let them sleep in, for goodness sake. Let's yes. Let's let them follow their body rhythms. So it's not even letting them be lazy. I've heard that a million times. It's really about letting them follow their body and allow them to wake up at, you know, 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock because that's what their body wants. They're not just mucking around. Well, they probably are mucking around to midnight, but that's because they want to go to sleep and there's so much social media and 
um, you know, interactions that they have online in their rooms as well, which is a whole other uh, thing. But, uh, you know, just to, yeah, we, we need to be doing more for our adolescents, absolutely. And to the point of social media and all of that distraction that's going on in their rooms, are you an advocate of uh, curtailing that for the teens or do you think they need to know how to manage it themselves? I I think it depends on their ages. Uh, I think for the young adolescents, you, you know, parents are in charge and yep. so they need to have and set up rules for uh, you know what what social media what so what technology goes into their child's rooms but as you you know in your question there is a stage where you just can't like you, you can't do that it's sort of like the drinking question or smoking question or anything like that we can control their environment um not them but their environment uh up until a certain age so you know my daughter didn't want her son to eat chocolate so he didn't have chocolate around him for the first few years of his life. Like he's he's only six now, so just to be clear, but he didn't have chocolate around him. So, you know, his environment was such that chocolate wasn't even a question for him because he didn't have it. He doesn't know what it's like to have chocolate now. He loves it. But, uh, you know, back then he didn't, he didn't know. With our technologies, if children don't have any technologies in their rooms as children, then into adolescence, early adolescence at least, they they don't need to have it either. Like they won't know what they're really missing. Um, but in the late latter years, you know, they need their technologies. That's their social outlet. And it's more about hoping that we've set up good boundaries for them to yeah. teach them what they, uh, much like the chocolate analogy, you know, that they know that chocolate isn't a dinner meal. It's mm-hmm. a it's a sometimes snack. And, you know, we, there's nothing, like we can't stop an adolescent, an older adolescent from buying chocolate and eating chocolate all day and all night. We just have to hope that we've set them up well enough to, um, you know, to be able to not worry about, uh, you know, whether they're going to eat it or not. So, Like everything, it's uh, training them for life in all of yeah. these areas. Absolutely. And for us to do our research too, actually, you know, as parents, we need to know not so much what others are doing although that's helpful to know what we can and can't do but to do our proper research and and speak to maybe the teachers at our children's schools or uh, you know speak to our doctor or psychologists if we have one uh, to find out what the research is really telling us in terms of allowing them to have time you know do we limit it do we not do we have rules about you know, phones out of their bedrooms or not. The biggest argument that I hear from adolescents about phones is that's my alarm, and and it is, and and also that social media continues whether they're um, allowed on it or not. So at nine o'clock at night, if they have to hand in their social media, you know, their phones to their parents, you know, at nine thirty, someone's bagging you out on you know, the social media and you have no way of defending yourself or finding out that, you know, at 10 o'clock someone says, hey, let's meet before school at this place and you miss out because you don't have it. So it's a, uh, it's an individual uh, choice, I think, for parents, but they need to do their research and work out what is in the best interest of their child, not necessarily what they want, but what is actually in the best interest of their child, taking into account both uh, their social needs as well as their other needs and the parents' belief systems and that kind of thing. So, yeah. It's a minefield for parents these days to know how to do that research and to work out what is in the best interests of their child. 
Yes, yeah. And I think it's really about having a look at uh, like Googling. I mean, what else do you do, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Google? So, you know, look it up, but try to find, uh, you know, places like psychology websites or uh, university websites or, or something that has some credibility. I, I would go only to reputable websites and then see what they have to say and then make up my own mind. That would be my view on that. And, and as I said, talk to if you have a psychologist or a mental health professional in your life, speak to them because they probably have access to the research, uh, your GP or, you know, any or pediatrician, anyone that um, may have, you know, more knowledge and experience in this area would probably be the ones to talk to about that so yeah and and as I said it's you know it's interesting in terms of the, the sleep things it's there was a thing about uh 29 percent of a survey there was a large survey done here in Australia 29 percent of people said their mobile phone was a key contributor to poor sleep so you know if that's one of the the biggest issues then you know, we really need to have a bit of a think about what that means and what that looks like in our lives, really. So, well, it is, um, as you say, it's a tricky one because with teens in particular and adults using their mobile phone as an alarm uh, mm. to have that removed while they're sleeping, but close enough to hear the alarm is is mm. is part of the balance of sleeping and learning how to sleep and teaching teens how to sleep and yet manage their phones as well as other devices and if people want advice about sleep um, clearly you've got some uh, practices there in Melbourne do you do remote sessions for people be away from Melbourne as well I do so I have telehealth uh, so my one of my websites is stomp out the ants so that's automatic negative thoughts so stomp out the ants.com.au and that uh, you can make appointments through there or just contact me uh, through that website. And, uh, yes, I, I have telehealth. I do have some in person as well if anyone's in the Blackburn area in Melbourne. But, yeah, the majority of people still uh, are actually using telehealth. So thankfully we have that. So excellent. Uh, the other thing that I have too, which is something very exciting at the moment, Amanda, is that I am creating a tech platform currently for uh, psychologists and mental health other mental health professionals to help people to stay um, on track to help our clients to stay on track engage monitor motivate so that is something that's coming up in the next 12 months so any mental health professionals listening to this uh, you can look up answer that's ant automatic negative thoughts sa so answer.com.au for uh, updates on that and finally my books i've got two books stomp out the ants uh, which is to help with negative thinking patterns and living with ants which is a child version it's a uh, like a picture book i guess for young children also about the automatic negative thoughts so Thank you for that. Oh, look, thank you for all these resources. And we know those automatic negative thoughts impact our sleep as well. They absolutely do. Thank you so much for this very helpful podcast, Sally-Ann. Oh, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Amanda. If anything discussed in this podcast has caused you concern or distress, contact your general practitioner or health provider. To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society 
and locate Find a Psychologist service on 1800 397 or visit www.findapsychologist.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14 and Kids Helpline, again 24-7 on 1800 1800 and both are free of charge. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.